I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Friday morning and welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Bozo with Carl Quintanilla and John Fort right beside me in San Francisco this morning. Today, Netflix reveals details about its ad-supported tier. The streets bullish on the strategy, but is a nearly $7 price point really cheap enough to stop the churn? And then NFL Sunday ticket is up for grabs. Will Apple continue its push into live sports? Plus, Mark Zuckerberg says he missed a giant shift in social networking. We'll have that story in just a few minutes. First, though, take a look at the broader markets. They are lower this morning, and we are seeing more consolidation in tech. John, yet another possible deal in the news this morning, this time Nutanix. And what's interesting, we actually talked about this yesterday, some of those targets that were ripe, guys. Um, This is a company that was worth, what, about $9 billion at its peak, $5 billion ahead of the news. Now we're nearing six. Um, So it feels like companies, John, are becoming more in line. The targets with the acquirers starting to accept that maybe they may not reach those peaks. So selling is a good option. Well, I think with Nutanix, the company is actually doing pretty well. And this is one of those uh, software for infrastructure multi-cloud plays. was just talking to the CEO, Rajiv Ramaswamy, here uh, exactly a month ago when, D, you and I were at the Goldman Sachs uh, conference here in San Francisco. He was talking about how uh, demand is still pretty healthy in this environment for that tier of enterprise software, but it's acquiring new customers versus expanding with existing customers. That's the issue. Take a listen. We've seen continued demand so far. Now, touch wood, you know, uh, everybody talks about a recession here, and we, uh, we're not immune from that either. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it, there's several layers, right? There's a layer in terms of enterprise hardware, and then there's enterprise software and infrastructure software, which is what we play in, which is to some extent a little bit insulated, but not fully insulated. And so we haven't seen that softening yet. Uh, now, that said, you know, as we look at our own guide and what we expect for the next year, we are being conservative when it comes to the new business because in a recessionary environment, people might delay projects, they might go slower on new business, sweat assets. So sweating assets, meaning eh, customers just keep what they have versus doing that, kind, uh, that, that digital transformation. But Carl, I think this is where investors have to think about, is there a floor under some of these companies because they have a solid amount of recurring revenue, you know, cash flow positive business, distinctive technology, even though things are down now, private equity could step in, somebody else could step in, and some of these companies, uh, sub $10 billion public companies could be good value. It kind of reminds me of what uh, James Gorman and Morgan Stanley said this morning, John, and that he's, you're going to see a washout, in his view, in fintech. He says that these mm. prices, I think the sellers are only there if they need to sell. Uh, they're probably holding out for better valuations, which he thinks might come uh, later this year, Dee. But uh, that's going to that be a huge chapter shift in how we've talked about legacy banks that is- and uh, some of these new startups. That is the key question. Where do they think their valuation should be? At what point do they get out? It also raises the question, Carl, of how do you finance these deals? We have seen more all-cash deals from the likes of Tomo Bravo, but Vista still doing some leverage buyouts um, in this tricky credit market. That's difficult. You've also got this uncertain economic backdrop as reasons against M&A, but we are seeing deals done. Uh, indeed. Um, in fact, let's stick with the markets this morning, bring in CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli, talk about the banks kicking off earnings and how apparently we're still beholden by uh, to some eco data today, Mike. For sure, uh, Carl. I mean, yesterday's move just in the broad indexes, it was sort of impressive, dramatic, 
not decisive. You have to look at it in the context of where we came from and the levels uh, that was provided the starting point for yesterday's bounce. And NASDAQ composite, for one, uh, even at the highs of this morning, uh, unlike the S&P, still below that June, mid-June low, at least closing low. Uh, so still kind of fighting an uphill battle. The trends are still negative. Yes, you're getting to be more uh, in a way of a normalized valuation if earnings hold up, but it's not showing uh, that it's about to really turn and burst higher just yet. Uh, take a look at financials and industrials relative to tech in the overall market, because there has been a little bit of a subtle shift toward things like financials, toward industrials, this sort of wholesale cyclicals, I guess you would call it, as opposed to consumer uh, cyclicals have started to do a little bit. This is just a one-month chart, so it's obviously not going to tell you uh, that things have really been a, uh, a tidal shift here. So financials, industrials, S&P 500, and tech, that's been uh, essentially the pecking order for a little while right now. The banks tell you a similar story, right? The economy as we see it here and now, as we can observe it in consumer and corporate behavior, seems okay, but we're very, very twitchy on any sense out there that the fight against inflation is going to stay as aggressive as it has been. And that's why the University of Michigan inflation expectations number for as, you know, not unrobust as that kind of statistically is, it's still moving the markets once you've had a two and a half percent gain yesterday, guys. Uh, Mike, as for the U.K., I know it's not exactly a tech story, but when you have a U-turn like this, uh, the sacking of uh, Quartang from, as the challenge, uh, chancellor and guilt's higher on the day, yeah. does that suggest to you that, uh, that policy is out of control? It suggests to you that the market is just not willing to bet that it's under control. I know that's a kind of roundabout way of answering it. It's one of those what-if questions. The market is full of them right now. So until the market proves that on its own and with the new kind of policy structure, it can absorb what's happening and not have things get too disorderly in the bond markets, uh, you know, it's not going to necessarily rush in there with a bunch of risk capital and, uh, and buy ahead of, of other people. I think that's a little bit of the defensive situation we're in in general, Dee. Mike Santoli, thanks so much. Let's take a look at Netflix. Shares are up more than 1%, really been on a roll over the last few months, outperforming some of the other big tech names. The streaming giant most recently announcing its ad-supported plan will go for $6.99 a month, undercutting some of its competitors like Disney and HBO Max. That ad-supported plan will be available in the U.S. beginning November 3rd. Key question, though, will it help the company reignite subscriber growth or is it going to cannibalize its existing business? Here to discuss CNBC contributor Neelay Patel of The Verge. Uh, Neelay, great. Thanks for being with us. Um, here's kind of my question. As we move into this experiment, not just with Netflix, but Disney Plus, do you think that the streaming platforms are going to find it more lucrative to sell ads? Does the subscription model eventually go away? I don't know that subscription model eventually goes away entirely. I think there's always some set of people who are willing to pay more money, which usually means a higher margin. And you kind of just see those high-end products persist for a long time. Uh, you know, they're aspirational in some ways, but they are also high margin, especially for streaming services. I think what you're seeing the street react to is Netflix finally has plans for revenue growth that aren't just, we're going to spend more money on content, right? And the two big plans here our ads, and that is two levers of revenue. You get actual subscription growth because you have a lower price. People might sign up at a higher rate. And you've got the ad money. That has yet to be proven out. They're, they're forecasting smaller ad loads, just like four ads an hour, much smaller than anybody else. And then on the other side, they're going to start cracking down on password sharing, which they're being very open about. So there's actual plans here, and you mm. can feel about those plans however you want. There's actual plans to both grow the subscriber base and revenue that aren't just spending money on content. We haven't seen that from Netflix in, what, five years? 
Okay, so then what about the price? We just were looking at a graphic that compares it to the other streaming platforms, and it is on the higher side. Yeah, I, Netflix has held itself out as the must-have for years. If you look at remotes for TVs, there's always a Netflix button on them. Netflix pays for those placements. The TV manufacturers know that if they ship a button, if they ship a remote without a Netflix button, consumers will be mad. That is an amazing position for Netflix to have been in. But if you look at the must-watch TV shows, they're not necessarily a Netflix mm -hmm. anymore. So I think Netflix has to still keep that content flywheel going fast while it faces incredible competition streaming from not uh, just Disney, but also Apple from Peacock, all these other competitors that have a lot of experience making must-watch shows. I'm glad you raised that, uh, Neelay. I'm looking at a Bernstein note where they argue uh, the ARPU target, you don't need to have a $65 uh, CPM. It's totally doable in their, in their view. And actually, the real debate should be whether or not uh, going to this uh, new model uh, adds up, ends up adding subgrowth. Maybe time to focus on subgrowth again. Yeah, I think that is the entire story here. If you can kind of just get back to uh, subscriber growth at a reasonable ARPU, and that's you know, I think we're going to see all of these streaming services fall into kind of the trap that cell carriers fall into, where ARPU is the entire name of the game, right? You bring people in, and then how much money can you extract from them? Netflix has to bring more people in, right? They have done basically expansion by going into every country around the world, and they've allowed uh, countries like the United States, other developed markets, to kind of stagnate. They've got to bring more people in in these markets with new product offerings, which they just have not done for a long time. Yeah, Neil, that's what I wonder is, is this emerging new model from Netflix a sign of maturity, which would be bad for the multiple. I mean, you think about uh, subscriber, are they really gonna grow subscribers at seven bucks? Like if you're gonna drop streaming, are you just gonna drop down to seven bucks to watch some ads? How significant is that gonna be uh, for growth? And then, yeah, the ads are really worth more in developed markets than in developing markets. Can they afford to keep pumping out localized content, which is really expensive on a sort of per country basis when they're also pursuing this. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I always think about Netflix as making a lot of shows that are great to watch while you look at your phone. And you know, that's kind of been the Netflix binge model. Like you just turn it on for several hours, you look at your phone, the, the show happens to you. Um, I'm, I, I'm interested to see if they can create those must watch shows. They've got a few of them. You know, the data suggests that every turn, uh, every week, Netflix has the top, some of the top 10 shows in the country. They're going to add Nielsen measurements to the ad-supported tier because advertisers want that independent audible data. We're going to find out if that's true, and I think that will reveal much more about the future of Netflix. Yep. Uh, Neelay, we also, while we have you, want to get to the Sunday ticket. Uh, CNBC out with new reporting that that is still up for grabs, and Apple is pushing for more flexibility with gaming rights, but existing restrictions surrounding Sunday ticket have slowed negotiations in recent months. We're expecting a winning bidder by the fall of this year. So only really a few weeks left for that, Nilay. Um, I guess the question, who cracks first? Which is the stronger, coming from the stronger position, the NFL or Apple, if this is the case? I think Apple cracks first. I just like flatly. Can I have the rest of the hour to talk about Sunday Ticket? Uh, this is a product <laughs> that like, it is, it is the crown jewel of American sports uh, products right now, right? NFL live streaming, out of market games, people wanna watch everything. It is such a poor product today. It is such a bad experience today that almost any improvement instantly grows the market, right? Almost any improvement over, mm. I'm going to look on Reddit for an illegal stream, instantly grows the NFL's revenue, instantly grows the market for sports streaming. It's the, I mean, this is the, like the hottest sports property going. 
Isn't Apple that an argument more. for Apple? Yeah. I mean, you say you say that you need a better experience. That's going to grow the market. It sounds like you're saying the NFL should crack. No, I'm saying Apple's saying we can do more than just give people the games they want with the extremely expensive, famous announcers they're familiar with. It's like too much. All the NFL needs is to reliably stream the product to people over mm. the internet, and they cannot do that today. So if you're Amazon or you're Apple, like your, your first cut is just like, yeah, we're going to give people an interface that doesn't crash every five seconds, right? The Sunday I ticket mean, has been down on more Sundays this season than it's been up. Part of this dynamic, Neela, isn't it, is that the NFL, the, the big sports leagues, aren't going to make the same mistake that the big media companies made dealing with Netflix, kind of giving away the store just to get that tech shine and that additional digital viewer. They understand the value of that direct-to-consumer shine and, and of sports and live sports in an increasingly commoditized content market. Yeah, and I think they also understand the the value of having multiple extremely lucrative deals with multiple partners who are always fighting each other. The NFL is in a perpetual contact, contract renegotiation, and they're in they're all they structure themselves that way because they're always creating leverage over one partner or, or, or another. For Apple to come in and say we want to experiment with how NFL games are packaged and sold, I think the NFL is going to look at that and say we're really good at this. What we need is a technology partner that can create an excellent user experience for people because so far, DirecTV, AT&T have not. And we don't want to take all that risk up by ourselves. We'd rather have every five or 10 years, Apple, Amazon, Google fighting for this package over and over again. I know it's secondary, Neelay, but I'm sure you saw the chatter last night about the Thursday night game and how bad it was, the prior Thursday night game and how bad it was. I think at one point there were 40 offensive possessions on Thursday night without a single touchdown. Uh, that's not great for Amazon. And I wonder if you think if Apple goes here, if they need to demand better matchups. <laughs> Probably. If you, if you get Sunday ticket, right, you get you get all the premier matchups because they're just in your bundle. You get the red zone product. There's a lot there. The thing about those Thursday night matchups being bad, I you know I've, I suffered through the last two weeks with everybody else on Twitter. We were all still watching it, and I that's the power <laughs> of the NFL. Yeah, right? hate watching it. It creates mono. Yeah, we were hate watching it. We we're complaining, but the NFL is one of the few monoculture sports products that remains. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are other big leagues, but you can't say that Major League Baseball creates those mono uh, monoculture sports moments anymore. It's really the NFL and maybe the NBA Finals, right? And that is extraordinarily powerful. And if for Apple, I don't know if you've watched Apple's broadcasts of Major League Baseball games. Apple doesn't know how to broadcast sports yet, right? They brought in the talent and they're doing a bad job. And if you're the what NFL, about, you're not going to hand off your your most hmm. lucrative product in the world to a company that still hasn't figured it out. You're going to let What about Joe broadcasting? Buck what about broadcasting Golden State Warriors practice? That's must see. <laughs> I mean, there's some people who want to do it and all that stuff is <laughs> just like there's just one more person who will pay the money to do it. And you can yeah. see the streamers yeah. have done that for a long time. But live sports is the game. A lot of people here. I only watch hockey. But you know what, Neela? You convinced <laughs> me. I could spend the next hour talking about this. Uh, we do have another good story, though. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg admitting to Stratechery's Ben Thompson. He missed a mega social media trend saying user interest has shifted away from viewing posts shared by friends and towards using your feed to discover content. Find things that are interesting. Send them to your friends and messages and interact there. The shift, that shift has largely contributed to the success of Meta's rival, TikTok. 
John, uh, you said something to me earlier this morning, which was interesting. You were like, did he really not see this coming? And so I went back to a 2016 post from Facebook, um, how they explaining how they built the newsfeed. First principle, friends and family come first. So you're right. They did consider that idea of a more algorithm-led um, model, but they went back to this. So what is Zuck talking about? I, I mean, yeah. T tell me what you think, Neil. It, it seems to me like Facebook, you know, Zuckerberg's talking out of both sides of his mouth here. They sort of were headed in this direction, but algorithmically driven content leads you down some pretty nasty misinformation, uh, you know, tail wagging the dog uh, areas. TikTok's not getting as much heat for that right now, but Facebook sure was. It's not that he missed it. He pivoted away from it intentionally. Oh, yeah, he absolutely pivoted away from it, right? They pivoted to Facebook groups. They pivoted to, to messaging. Yeah, the, Facebook's own data for years and years and years has, sh has shown there's more action in Instagram DMs than there is on Instagram proper. And I think what Zuck is trying to kind of reframe here is they're pivoting to the discovery engine. That's their AI-generated uh, content recommendation tool across all of their feeds where you open Facebook and you see the best stuff from text Facebook, from Instagram stories, whatever, and they're going to build that TikTok-like experience using all these multiple formats. I kind of see what he's getting at. I also firmly believe that the shift he's talking about, where you just open an algorithmic feed to find recommendations of cool things, it's that happens next to, I want to see what my friends are doing. And yeah. all the companies are pivoting towards scale, and they see scale there. That doesn't mean that people don't aren't interested in what their friends are doing. Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the groups on Facebook aren't still hot. I think he's just trying to reframe the discovery engine pivot, which is really, I need to compete with TikTok. Yeah, people still want to see cute posts from their friends. Uh, maybe that's why they go to Facebook and Instagram. Neelay, thanks so much for being with us. Neelay Patel from The Verge. Thanks. Still to come, a double downgrade of the NASDAQ exchange, a price target cut for Meta, plus a bull call on App Love It. Tech checks back after this. Let's get a gut check on the NASDAQ exchange, the ticker itself, NDAQ. B of A double downgrade today to underperform. Uh, they say while their total return is positive, the NASDAQ is at the quote, low end of their coverage. And while they foresee meaningful EPS growth in 24, volume headwinds, retail disengagement, market tech growth decelerations all stand as risk factors for the coming year. Shares down about four and a half percent, obviously in a pretty red tape, John. Yeah, Carl. Uh, and now let's turn to semiconductors. There's been a lot of news the last few days. You've got uh, reportedly thousands of layoffs possibly coming for Intel, guidance cuts from AMD and applied materials, number of names gaining exemptions from chip restrictions on China and a stronger than expected quarter out of TSMC. Let's bring in former Cypress Semiconductor CEO TJ Rogers to uh, get a closer look. TJ, I I'm particularly interested in the impact on equipment makers and on sort of uh, leading edge fabs into the future. China's had this ambition to build its own domestic capability, but that's looking tougher right now. What does that mean for other companies that are trying to build up capacity, including potentially Intel? Well, uh, China stated 10 years ago that they wanted to become self-sufficient on, on uh, uh, the semiconductors. And uh, they worked on it, but fortunately for us, semiconductors is are a relatively unique business where freedom and free markets matter a lot. And that's why our industry is always dominated. 
Um, people who have an axe to grind might define it as percent share of manufactured, which doesn't matter that much anymore. Uh, the term foundry uh, was invented by Carver Mead, a Caltech professor, and I found it insulting, but what he said was a semiconductor manufacturer is going to be like a foundry, and the brain, the brain part of the function will be in the chips, what's on the chips, and how small the geometries are. So uh, we've decided to cut off China, that, and Donald Trump did that, and, and Joe Biden has tripled down, not even doubled down, uh, on that strategy. And he's now cut off equipment to China, as well as the middle nodes, that the 12, 14 micron nodes, chips made specifically for AI and supercomputing, namely that those which could be applied to the military. So, right. it's, so it's, it's a gut punch for China. It, it's a knockout blow. So what are the implications for investors? What, how does that kind of tilt the scales? What's a better bet now because of that? I'm looking at ASML. It's still above its pandemic, uh, pre-pandemic highs. You know, I'm thinking about other equipment makers. And again, you know, the players that are trying to build up foundry capacity and double down on that that are U.S.-based. What does it mean for them? Well, to, if you go up to the highest level, uh, Physics says there will be enough machines in the world to make uh, the chips that the world demands. Right now, the world is demanding roughly uh, the number of chips being made, although there's some places where we don't have enough and some places where we're starting to have a glut. So this whole action really is determining what countries those machines will be in, more so than how many machines they will be. Uh, the ASML, LAM, AMT, the chip equipment companies, will make the equipment for the new fabs, and uh, they will they will ship them somewhere. So I, I don't think there's a huge downside for the chip-making companies. Uh, this is just moving, moving them from Shanghai to Ohio. Hmm. Okay, well, TJ, what about, you know, second and third layer consequences? As you say, these export restrictions, they're a knockout punch. They can affect everything from China's ambitions in AI, their military growth, are we going to see retaliation this time? Who might that affect? Where does Taiwan fit in? Now, you've got something in which I know very little. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> uh, what, what China's going to do in response, but I am a student of free trade. I do know that when China behaves itself, which it isn't, um, that's better for us. I know that every American's better off when they can buy goods from China. Uh, on the other hand, uh, what's China going to do? It's like you know, you know, the, the old the old joke: stop or I'll shoot. Uh, okay, what are you going to do? Stop making stuff, shut down your factories to prevent us from getting imports. Um, this may have the desired effect. It may have the effect of of causing us to come to the table and work out a deal with the Chinese, which would be better for both countries than what we're doing now. Hey, TJ. Meantime. Uh you know, we keep hearing various long-term targets of the percentage of global memory that can be made in this country, having had it crushed over the last few decades. Where do you think that number can top out? How self-sufficient can we become as we uh, build this, you know, these belts of manufacturing in, in Ohio and, and maybe New York? Okay, that, that, that's a great question because that really goes to the heart of the issue. Where is it going to end up? And, you know, let me take a, an example. We don't weave cotton into thread anymore, nor do we weave cotton thread into shirts anymore. So there's a point in, in the life cycle of any technology where the technology is no longer economically done in the United States. That's true for, let's say, 80% of all chips in the world right now. 
Uh, they're better made somewhere where people earn a buck an hour, two bucks an hour, than what Americans want to earn, let's say $20, $25 an hour. And that means those, those uh, jobs are going to go elsewhere. Uh, what we're trying to do now is parse between the, the critical, technically and militarily critical and strategic semiconductors that we do want in the United States. And that, again, is right now we're 12% manufacturing. That's probably a pretty good number. If we control the technologies of that 12%, we'll be okay. Having said that, uh, you know, they can shut off plain old junk chips. And all of a sudden, uh, we've got a problem making the, pro the high-end products that use chips. So it, it, it's a very complex problem. Again, we're better off working with them, getting them to do the right thing uh, with pressure than, than we are uh, this, this uh, war. Trade yeah, war. we'll see. See if we can find a new playbook uh, to make that happen, because the old one doesn't seem to have worked. T.J. Rogers, thank you. Thank Let's you. get a quick check on the markets as we had to break the Dow's down more than 100 points. The Nasdaq was just about flat on the week heading into today's session. It's now down 1.5%, which would lead to another weekly loss. Take a look at some of the names looking to lead a weekly bounce. You've got Moderna, Walgreens, Amgen, Kraft, Heinz, PepsiCo at the top of that list. More tech check after the break. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Coming up this morning, one strategist will tell us when she thinks the right time is to start putting some cash back into the market. NASDAQ is falling today on pace for its fourth negative week in the last five. Let's get a news update this morning with Contessa Brewer. Hey, Contessa. Hi there, Carl. Nice to see you. A flurry of strong bank earnings driving those stocks higher and helping trim losses in the broader market. Wells Fargo, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase all topping estimates propelled from higher interest rates. Morgan Stanley, though, is bucking that trend. It had top and bottom line misses driven by weakness in its global wealth and investment management business. Kroger's buying rival supermarket chain Albertsons in a $25 billion deal. That deal combines the country's two largest standalone grocery companies. The merged firms will still be number two, though, to Walmart's grocery operations. Consumer sentiment is up this month and well above expectations, even as inflation expectations worsened. September retail sales were shy of estimates. They came in flat as higher prices for rent and food limited the money available for other things. And British Prime Minister Liz Truss has abandoned a plan to cut corporate taxes. She also fired her Treasury chief but said she has no intention of stepping down herself. The British pound is down against the dollar for a second day in a row. Guys, Carl, send it back to you. All right, Contessa, thanks very much. Amid these up and down markets, our next guest says to stay invested, although neutral on tech. She is hot on the cloud and even some semi names, despite the slips that we just talked about. Joining us this morning, Wilmington Trust Head of Investment Strategy, CMEC contributor Megan Shoes with us. Happy Friday, Megan. Good to see you again. Thanks, Carl. Thanks for having me. I know CPI yesterday didn't really change your inflation narrative, and I'm watching the two-year, once again, 449, 10-year, just above four. Uh, does it, is it beginning to feel to you like those are going to be relative ceilings here uh, for a while? Yes, I think we are getting close to the peak 10-year uh, Treasury yield for this cycle. I really think that's the one to watch as we think about um, the stock market, especially some of those longer duration assets like within the technology sector or growth stocks. Um, you know, we're getting incrementally more hawkish uh, pricing from the market. Now looking at a peak Fed funds rate pretty darn close to 5%. I don't think that moves much higher. 
Um, and even, you know, with that disappointing inflation read yesterday, we haven't really seen the 10-year move too much. So I do think we are, you know, it's possible we move a little bit higher, but I think the heavy lifting has been done here in terms of the massive repricing from the market on the Fed side and what we've seen in reaction uh, from the 10-year Treasury yield. Right. And we'll talk about uh, sectors in a moment. But, OK, if we got if we got the terminal rate uh, basically getting set aside, isn't now the issue of how long we hold here and what the impact is going to be on earnings for next year? Absolutely. So typically when you're looking at a Fed rate hike cycle, you expect the market to start to find the bottom when you get to that peak rate, um, because it usually means that the Fed is then going to start cutting rates. Um, and I think that might be a little bit different here, particularly given the importance um, and really the urgency behind the inflation story. What we've heard from the Fed is that they will get to a certain point, but not immediately start to cut. Of course, that's based on the data today. The Fed does not have the luxury anymore of using leading indicators to try to predict where inflation's going. But a lot of those leading indicators are still encouraging for a slower inflationary environment. Um, and so I think when we actually get down to that time, uh, you know, at some point in 2023, when the Fed does level off, um, it will have to see if inflation is coming down uh, quickly because growth is slowing dramatically, then we might start to see some easing off of the break from the Fed. Um, and all of that could help kind of ease markets and, and start to find that recovery period. Hey, Megan, um, I want to talk about uh, growth tech, we sometimes call it unprofitable tech, or maybe not profitable yet tech, particularly because Nutanix right now is up 24% on uh, questions about whether it is in play. Now, this is a stock that's been underestimated over the past couple months. It was trading, I think, down in the, in the 17 area before its earnings report. It popped after earnings. It's higher than that now. And also thinking about Vista's move for no before, uh, which is now trading at 24, and it was in the 17 range just a few weeks ago. And I think the, the question is, even though some of these companies aren't profitable, if they're in areas like multi-cloud, like cybersecurity, and have unique technology, is there a point in getting into them now, either for the long term or in some cases, hey, private equity is stepping in and saying, this looks good. Yeah, so I think there's two issues at play here. Um, one has been, and it really comes back to the rate conversation. So one has been the velocity of the move in interest rates, and that's really what has shaken the foundation of some of those growthier parts of the market that don't have profitability. And then the other is the level of rates. Um, so I would say from the velocity perspective, I think we've felt a lot of that pain. So I think you could start to see investors ease back into uh, longer duration assets, less profitable companies. We are still looking within the growth sector for uh, you know, a lean towards valuation. So kind of that growth at a reasonable price type of dynamic um, and a path to profitability, if not mm -hmm. actual profitability. And I think the reason for that is because we are probably looking at a return to a more normalized interest rate environment. So, you know, even if inflation comes off, we don't expect a return to those level of rates that we've enjoyed for the past few years that really gave fuel to that mm -hmm. unprofitable uh, tech sector part of the market. And so I think going forward, you really do have to keep an eye on valuations. But a lot of the growth um, that mm -hmm. we are probably going to see in the tech space is going to come from some of these newer entrants. So 
finding the balance, I think, is, is really the key. Right. We're always trying to figure out what the right valuation is for this, especially this unprofitable tech sector, if you will. And Megan, what does it tell us that maybe there's some interest here in terms of Nutanix, in terms of M&A activity, P interest and some of these other names? Are we getting close to a bottom? Well, we've already seen a 25% correction in the S&P 500. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of negative headlines and a lot of people who are, uh, you know, putting out that really risky scenario that we have, you know, some sort of spillover or contagion. Um, you know, that that is always a possibility, but it's not our base case. And, and really, even our downside scenario is for a mild recession. And so I think if you think about that, you think about getting to peak hawkishness, peak interest rates. I think that is why you're going to start to see investors easing back into some of these growthier parts of the market. And, you know, bottoming doesn't happen on a day. Uh, we are reminded, you know, back to the pandemic when it was literally a, a, a drop down and a slingshot back up. And I think this is going to take longer. So it is going to be more of a process. Um, but I, I don't think that we have too much further to fall. And that's why I think you have to stay invested here. Uh, Megan, it has been a process, that's for sure. It's been good to check in with you uh, at least uh, once a week or so uh, as we make our way through this. Good to see you. Have a good weekend. Megan Shu. Thank you, you too. Still to come, a price target cut for Meta. That call when Tech Check returns. Shares are down 1.5%. Don't go away. Welcome back. As CNBC celebrates Hispanic heritage, our Kate Rooney is looking into the recent flood of private equity dollars into Latin America. Kate Rooney, you got those numbers? I do. Hey, John. Good morning. Latin America is very much on the map right now for private equi equity. And after a record 2021, there has been a slowdown. But the, this year is still on track to be the second biggest in terms of deals for South America and Central America. According to the Latin American Venture Capital Association, price tags have come down substantially. But total deal number is actually holding up relatively well. There's been a sharper drop in those late stage pre-IPO deals while earlier rounds are holding up much better. I talked to some of the biggest investors in South America as well. Ariel Ariata of NXTP tells me there's been an end to what he called blitz scaling. We've heard the same thing here in the U.S., a lot more discipline on the VC side and still a pile of money they have to spend. You've got global names like SoftBank, Tiger, Sequoia that have raised dedicated LATAM funds and they need to get that money out the door. The appeal here, guys, is growth. In Latin America, there is a chance to leapfrog or replace some of the existing tech and infrastructure faster than you might see in the U.S. Banking is one big example. There's a large tech-savvy but unbanked or underbanked population. And fintech is by far the biggest category for deals right now. That's followed by e-commerce. Crypto and Web3 also getting a lot of attention there. And Brazil is attracting by far the most deals, followed by Mexico, Colombia, Chile and Argentina. There's also a growing tech e ecosystem there. Hernan of Kazakh pointed to some of the entrepreneurs that really cut their teeth at companies like Mercado Libre, which he founded. New Bank also recently went public and they're moving off to start their own ventures. He's seen a rise in what they call serial entrepreneurs. About 43 percent of dollars this year went to a repeat founder. There's also a lot more diversity. About one third of dollars went to female led startups versus about 12 percent of global dollars. And then check out some of the publicly traded names as well. PogSeguro, Mercado Libre, DeLocal, Nubank, backed by Berkshire, went public last year, down with broader tech, but actually outperforming some of their North Amer American uh, fintech peers, at least. Back to you. 
Wow, what a great angle, especially uh, in all kinds of sectors, uh, media, but especially fintech, too. Uh, Kate, thanks for that. Speaking of which, want to get a check on the banks today, uh, getting pushed around by some of the macro. Of course, the tape went red on the hotter than expected UMISH inflation expectations and sentiment. All sectors are red at the moment, and we're about 100 points off of the intraday highs on the S&P. We're back in two. NASDAQ hitting session lows down 2%, but check out shares of App Levin. Wedbush initiates that outperform this morning with a $26 price target. They say they're bullish given strong revenue and profit growth potential, which is only partially offset by concerns around macroeconomic pressure and guidance. Analysts add they expect App Levin to deliver robust top and bottom line expansion for the foreseeable future. Shares were up at the open, but now lost those gains down two and two-thirds of a percent. This is a stock that was as high as 40 bucks back in August. Remember the whole Unity failed merger there. Uh, we'll be right back in a minute. Turning now to Meta, that used to be Facebook, uh, Bernstein out with a new note, naming the company their top pick, sticking with an outperform rating, but slashing the price target. Let's bring in the analyst behind that call, Mark Schmulek. Mark, my question about Facebook Meta is, doesn't the whole stock now kind of hinge on whether they cut this amount of spending that they're putting into headsets and the metaverse? I mean, they could pop profitability quite easily just by pulling back a little on that. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Um, you know, I, I get the irony of pitching effectively an ad stock, uh, you know, into an uncertain macro. Um, you know, and I think there's really three parts to this bear case that have gotten really loud recently, one of which is certainly the expenses and the spending, not just on Metaverse, but overall. Um, you know, two is on engagement, right? The, uh, the first ever year-over-year user declines in history. And the third is on revenue growth. And, you know, once again, the first ever year-over-year revenue declines in its history. Um, I think what we're going to see is traction against all three of those. We've already seen engagement on the aggregate back on track. Globally, Facebook Blue and Instagram are the top two most downloaded apps on the planet this quarter. Uh, on the expense side, I do think we're going to see some increased discipline from them. They're certainly you know, committed uh, to building this future of, of the metaverse, but we'll certainly see some increased discipline, uh, which at this point I think should be more than enough to get investors comfortable underwriting earnings growth for the company. And then lastly, on the revenue growth trajectory, I think they've got plenty of levers that are idiosyncratic uh, to them specifically to get that, at least allowing investors to look at it coming off of the bottom. Yeah, I agree with a big part of what you're saying, particularly the, the idea, I think that I hear you articulating, that the narrative has turned against Meta, particularly Facebook and Instagram, maybe a little too strongly. But this reminds me of, what was it, five years ago, they had said, we're going to spend all this money building up content moderation, but they sort of sandbagged. And then when they pulled back, the stock popped. Aren't we in another one of those situations where, yeah, all three of those things are important, but really the most important thing, maybe the only really important thing for the stock is whether they pull back on that spending on, well, mostly metaverse, though some other things. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly, you know, a, a critical part of the story, certainly. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's the question marks about the metaverse. Metaverse would have been a great thematic to invest in probably late last year. Not quite what investors are looking for, given the midst of the, the macro environment we're under. But I think in addition to that, right, it's, it's really also about the health of core. You know, this viewpoint that nobody uses Facebook anymore, it's a melting iceberg, you know, pick your favorite expression. You know, I, I think that's untrue, but I think it's also something that we've just seen, you know, capturing the headlines. And so until you can get past some of those very loud bear narratives, uh, you know, it gets really hard to, to kind of underwrite uh, long-term growth trajectory for the stock, whether you believe in the metaverse or not. 
Hey, Mark, I wonder, you know, once you strip out sort of the cyclical uh, dynamics and, you know, the ad cycle and, and certainly monetization of product in the near term, if you've ever seen a company invest this much money and this much time on a, on a promise that was this far out and whether or not you think that gives bears some credence when, they, when they're skeptical. Uh, certainly. I mean, it's a, it's a big number, right? Uh, you know, if you kind of add it all up since they, you know, since they bought Oculus, um, you know, you're talking about a number in the tens of billions of dollars, you know, probably north of 30, 35. So it's a big number. You know, I, I kind of step back and ask myself, and I do this exercise every few months, is, you know, if they were private, what's really the right move for the company? If we weren't scrutinizing them on a quarterly basis, you know, do we really believe there's going to be a change or an evolution in the computing platform? Meta's lived through that. You know, think back to the IPO where we were migrating from mobile to desktop, and we had these existential questions of, you know, at that time, a billion users, could they migrate them over successfully to this app-based ecosystem? So, you know, cer certainly see the, the optics around it, but I don't think it's the wrong long-term strategy for the company. So, Mark, even if you have um, still good or improving engagement, more cost discipline, the ad market is changing so much. You've got competition from Netflix and Disney. Amazon's becoming an even bigger player. So, you know, even if everything sort of is the same and there's still a good ad proposition, are they still going to be winning the same kind of ad dollars as they have been over the last decade? Yeah, certainly. I think the market's absolutely more competitive, right? You you got Netflix, Disney coming in on the CTV side. Certainly TikTok's a player here to stay. You know, who knows if and when Be Real starts ramping up kind of their own monetization efforts. So there's certainly competition. Um, you know, the thing I'd point to is when you look at the advertiser perspective, best-in-class advertising for performance marketing remains squarely on Google and Meta. You know, Meta's been hurt, certainly, by Apple's IDFA changes. Uh, but I point to Advantage Plus, which is a product they launched recently, which to me, uh, you know, is kind of the caddis I'd look for to kind of get that moat back on track, effectively helping, you know, automate much of the advertiser's big question marks. You know, what does the creative look like? Bringing AI into the mix. Where do I target? Uh, where do I place it? And effectively running through thousands of combinations on the advertiser's behalf. You know, Google has something similar in Performance Max, but I think this reinstates the moat around the quality of Meta's ad business. Right. Well, Mark, thanks. The difference might be the iPhone was already five years old when Facebook went public and was making that pivot. Face computers, not as clear. Mark Schulich. He mentioned, he mentioned Be Real as I got the notification. I wonder mm. if he meant to do that. <laughs> NASDAQ down 2%. Tech Check is back in a moment. We'll do it in the break now. <laughs> One more thing this morning, Elon Musk's conduct in his bid to buy Twitter reportedly under federal investigation. That's according to newly released filings from the platform. No details on what he's being investigated for or the agencies involved, but Twitter says Musk failed to comply after they asked for materials related to that investigation in July, with attorneys for Musk last month providing a, quote, privilege log of documents they planned to withhold. Awfully sketchy here, John, uh, given that we have no idea where, where they're going with this. I, I don't know, um, especially given how much Elon expresses on Twitter, how much we saw he was getting inbound traffic uh, from, from friends on this deal, and really his influence over the stock while having an interest in the stock. All of that D important. Yep. Stock's at 50.69, so still not at that level where he's supposedly supposed to acquire it for. Guys, session lows as we're revisiting 3,600. Have a good weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.